Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Lights, Camera, Sports Podcast, presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. Hello, I'm Mike Galtieri. So happy to be back once again, especially as the calendar is starting to change now, uh, November into December. Thought it'd be great to do a basketball-oriented podcast. And I brought on Leo Papil. You might know him as the founder of the BABC, the Boston Athletic Basketball Club. Uh, AAU basketball program also uh, evolved heavily with the Celtics in the late 90s all the way through the 2000s and now does some NBA scouting work. So he has a deep history with Boston College basketball and just basketball around the Northeast. Really, really fun and exciting podcast. So this is a long podcast. I spoke to Leo for about over an hour. I'm going to break it down into two weeks, two podcasts. So this is the first podcast this first week. I think you'll like it. And then we'll go right into the second half of the podcast next week. So first, let's hear from uh, Chestnut Hill Technology and Stone Love and Pizza, and then we'll go right into the podcast. As always, if you want to um, advertise on the podcast, just email lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. That's lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. Very reasonable rates, and you get your name out throughout New England and the Boston College community. Also, like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, be sure to be a member of the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com for more details and to sign up. All right, we'll get right into podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Lights Camera Sports Podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. Hello, once again, I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to be back once again. And as we the calendar has changed, we're progressing now into basketball season and I thought a great guest to talk about Boston basketball, tie it in with BC, is the great Leo Papil from BABC, uh, evolved the NBA as well now, scouting. First of all, Leo, thanks so much for the time. You have your program, BABC, 21 national titles, 104 New England championships. First of all, Leo, just, just thank you so much. And uh, I, I want to know how you got involved in basketball growing up in Boston. Probably, you know, I, 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 dating myself, but the first NBA game I saw was actually Jerry West's first NBA game in Boston. It was uh, in November of 1960 <clears throat> as a kid in, in the old Boston Garden. And, uh, of course, the NBA was a lot different than it is now. There were nine teams. But like many, many kids in that era, uh, we were overwhelmed by the success of the local franchise, Boston Celtics, you know, through 57 through 71 and, and, and through 69, rather, in that 13-year period.
that was like our uh, laboratory where we studied and, and watched games. The, the NBA was an eight or nine game team, a league at that time, and the league often played doubleheaders to save money on travel. And the entire Eastern Division, it was called, was Boston, Syracuse, Philadelphia, New York. So those four teams would travel almost as in a caravan, and they would play doubleheaders. So in other words, uh, in Boston tonight at uh, 6 o'clock would be the Knicks versus Philly, and eight right after that would be Boston against Syracuse. You know, they took that cue from the college doubleheaders that were very successful in the old Madison Square Garden. And, and, the, and the NBA didn't quite have the success of college basketball at, at that time in terms of attendance or TV or anything of that nature. So uh, that, that, that's where it kind of began for me. I uh, was fortunate that my father was in, uh, a cop in Boston, and we lived in North Quincy on the Dorchester line. I, I, I measured it a million times. It was 6.6 miles from the garden to my door. And, uh, you know, my grandmother was in the south end, and it was, which was about 3.2 miles from the, the garden, my, my mother's mother. And so I was able to, you know, be, a, be up front and close, you know, for hundreds of games in, the, in that period from 60 through 71 when I graduated high school. So that's really where it was. And uh, actually, I remember uh, Coach Cousy at Boston College and my CYO team in 1967 won the New England Championship, and Coach Cousy, was, who was then joining great success at Boston College, came and he was the featured speaker at our awards banquet. And uh, that was a huge, huge uh, impact as well because we watched him play. He retired relatively young, I think at 33. There he was at BC with phenomenal success. If you look in that era, in the 60s through when he retired, went back to the pros in, the, in, in 70. Uh, it, you know, Coach Guzzi came in one time and just, uh, it, was, it was like, you know, Jesus coming down from the mountain listening to him speak. So <laughs> I think where, you know, where I grew up, when I grew up, was, was, was the catalyst for having a you know, long career in pro basketball, you know. Do you have a favorite moment from your childhood of watching the Celtics, a specific moment, a game uh, in that era? Uh, in, in 68, 67, they got, they, they got destroyed by a great Philadelphia 76ers team. And, and this, this consecutive streak was over. You know, they, they had won their uh, eight, eight in a row. They'd won nine in ten years. And they got way late. I remember game five in, in Philly in Convention Hall. They lost 140 to 113. Most people thinking that it, it, uh, Russell was player coach that year, ready to retire the year before. In 68, they were getting older. And then they had a series. They got destroyed in 67. Philly went on to win the championship. They were 68 and 13. Arguably the greatest team ever assembled. Boston came back in 68. And had to play Philly in the uh, in the um, playoffs in the Eastern Division Finals was down three games to one. I remember Game Six being in the Garden. It was a Thursday night. You know the playoffs would get done in April back then, and it was just a a watershed moment. Uh, you know, for, you know, for the character of that group. You know, Russell, Sam Jones, all those immortals. John Havlicek uh, came back and won that series in '68, and and, and and repeated in '69 when they finished fourth in the division. And, and, and just barely made the playoffs, but the, probably those two years, you know. And then, uh, I remember in '69, the, uh, <clears throat> they lost the first two to L.A. Chamberlain was now in L.A. <clears throat> with the Lakers, with Weston Baylor, again a team people thought was the greatest team ever assembled at that time. And L.A. won the first two games. <clears throat> excuse me, in L.A., great games. Uh, they both were two point games, and I think West averaged 50 for the Lakers, and Howard averaged 48, I think, for the Celtics. In those two. But jump ahead, game six, it was, a, it was a Saturday afternoon in the Garden, and, and everybody knew it was going to be Sam Jones' last game. He announced his retirement. L.A. led three games to two. Unbeknownst to all of us, it was Russell's last game in the Garden. 
of quietly through Sports Illustrated. Never had a ceremony. Being down three games to two, Boston rallied and won that game, then went to L.A. and won a shocking game seven, and that wrapped up that era. As of that night, 1969, I ceased being a sports fan. And I don't mean, I don't mean that to be a wise guy, because then I was starting to play. I was 15 years old and kind of worried more about the game I was involved with, my team involved with it, be football or basketball. So that was my last night as a fan, 69, when the, when the Celtics won it. And since then, I've been oblivious to being a fan of anything. So uh, just, just trying to grind out wins for my own group, whether it be as a player or a coach or an administrator or what have you. Wow, that's interesting. Was there a moment that you told yourself, I don't want to be a fan anymore, I just want to play? Is there- oh, no, it was just a natural order of things because <clears throat> I think at a field then, you know, you know, I graduated high school at 16, so 59, I was going to 11th grade, and, you know, it was the task at hand was to, you know, be a player. Yeah. And then, and then as the years went on, the task at hand went to be a coach. Yep. And the task went, and the pros, the task at hand went on to be an administrator or executive or whatever your title was in a, in a pro organization. So you, you had a role on a team. Gotcha. So when, when, when you're invested in a team, I, I think you have tunnel vision That's all you that care team. About. Yeah. That particular team, that particular practice, that particular game. I think if there are any ex or current athletes listening, I think they'll totally agree to that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I still go to my high school football game every Thanksgiving, North Quincy, Quincy, but I go more as a... You know, to just to just to summons the ghost of the past, so to speak. I, I don't go there with a rooting interest, or you know, the people say the uh, Are you a Patriots fan? Or the, you know, because I happen to be from you know from Boston, and I say the last time I saw the Patriots play in Boston was uh, December 1970 at Harvard Stadium, which is on the Boston side of the Harvard campus in Brighton. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and the last time I was in Fenway Park was the last game the Patriots played in Fenway Park which was 1967, because as many of your, your BC people, they went to Alumni Stadium at BC in 68 and played one, one season at BC. So, yeah, I would say that's, that was the time I ceased being a fan because we, we moved on to, you know, just, just being a participant, whether it be coaching, playing, yeah, all the above, you know. That's, that's well said. Well said. That's a great segue, too. I want to briefly touch about your career. Uh, after school, you went to – you played uh, – uh, with the Quincy Chiefs, uh, you no, I believe you coached there, right? Or did you play the Quincy yeah, Chiefs? Well, yeah, that was in the Eastern League, which became the CBA, which had a, a you know uh, unofficial working agreement as the NBA's minor league. That came about because of an injury. Actually, uh, we had a semi-pro team in Boston, which a lot of BC guys played on, played at. We used to play tour around New England and play on weekends. When I say semi-pro. Uh, There'd be a tournament in Hartford, New Haven, uh, Plymouth, Mass, Worcester, Springfield. Your team would put up an entry fee of a couple hundred bucks. And if you, you know, everybody was past college, and if you won, you'd win a prize, you know, $500,000 to split between an entire team of seven or eight guys. Now, that may not seem like much today, maybe buy a dinner but uh, for the team, but back then, believe it, for us, for us, it might have been as a million dollars. That sort of morphed into a pro team in, 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 uh, in 1977. Unfortunately for me, I uh, did what they call torn ligaments. Yeah, yeah. medicine calls ACL. But the remedy for torn ligaments then was a cast from your hip to your ankle for a year. Wow. <laughs> My cast wore out after about six or seven months from, you know, natural order things. But uh, being effective at the pro basketball level was no longer an option. So I sort of, more, you know, I was the youngest guy, and a lot of the core of our semi-pro team became the core of that Eastern League's pro team. And... Uh, I sort of got drafted as coach, you know, 
because I wasn't playing. They say, why don't you coach us? I said, well, I never coached before, so I was on the job training. I was the second best league in the world. I was 23. Uh, the ABA had folded the year before. The NBA had cut back from 12 to 11 players for economic reasons. The NBA was still struggling. And here I am at 23, you know, general manager and, and head coach of a pro basketball team. I remember I went to the owners and I said, if I'm going to do this, you know, none of us are really playing for money, but I can't have any player making more money than me because then the authority won't be there. And they said, okay, our, our, our highest paid contract is $50 per game. We'll give you 51 <laughs> and then we traveled up and down the East Coast in 77, 78, and the, the Quincy Chiefs were born. Uh, you know, I, I stayed in that league that the team folded, like most of those teams would after a year or two when I was up in Maine and Bangor, a team called the Maine Lumberjacks. Yeah. And the Continental Basketball Association, which had four teams in the East and four teams in the West. What I recall about that was when, you, when we went West, there were four teams, so we did a baseball-like tour. We played four games in four nights. In four places, and they were Great Falls, Montana, Billings, Montana, Lethbridge, Alberta, and Anchorage, Alaska. Wow! It was 16 games with one travel day in 20 days in February in those locales, mm. and that was rough. Jeez! So long ago that George Cowell was a rookie coach in Montana, and the following year George came to Albany. They expanded into the East, expanded it, put a, put a fifth team in the East, and his assistant was Phil Jackson his first coaching job. So I I know I sound like I'm 100 years old, but I kind of got a head start at 23 because of the injury. So, uh, you know, people often say, I saw in in some record book your name uh, coaching back in the 70s in pro ball. That must have been your father or an uncle. I said, no, that was me. Jeez. Unfortunately got hurt and on the job training and became a coach, you know. And that's how it all began. That's pretty much where where that went, you know. Was it Ted Sarandis involved with that? BC fans know him, a former radio guy. Yeah, um, in, in that summer, 77, and as part of my duties as general manager, I had to put a staff together, and uh, I got a call from a, a Globe writer, John Powers, who was who was a, 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 a beat guy for the Globe, the little Celtics, the, the beat guys were versatile, then they would swing between all sports and said, he knew a young man from his, from his hometown in Concord that graduated Syracuse, and uh, he was looking to get involved with pro sports. So Ted was actually working in the garden, I think, for the Bruins, off of the garden in tickets. And he, he moonlighted as our, uh, it would be like our SID, version, yes. our, our, our uh, PR guy. Gotcha. He, he would come on the road with us, and uh, we had a radio station on the South Shore that did our games, and he helped coordinate that. And uh, he was fresh out of college. My, my, my memory, uh, he probably was 21 or 22 years old, yes. Wow. That's great. Now let's talk about the transition getting involved with BU, uh, Rick Pitino in the late 70s, Leo. Yeah. Uh, how did that all come together? Yeah. I remember he had had a, a rookie year at BU the year I was in the CBA. Uh, and uh, no, the, uh, the, the year after the CBA, my team folded. I took a college coaching job in the NCAA at the time, just had two divisions the university division, which were the BCs of the world, and the rest of them was called the college division. A BC alum who was a dear friend and a mentor of mine, Jim Nelson, who was BC class of 65, uh, was the head coach at Suffolk. I was his assistant the following year, 78. Also, uh, we were getting BABC going in 77 and 78. And in 79, after Patino's rookie year at BU, uh, we were coaching BABC. We were playing the Soviet national under-20 team, believe it or not. That's how much different the world was than the Soviet. They had a really 
USA Basketball just was getting going, and, and the AAU was strong. So they set up a tour, the Soviet national team, through what they thought would be the most competitive cities. And the tour would begin and end in New York or Boston, and then they would go Detroit, Chicago, Kansas, you know, playing all these great venues. So we played the Soviets uh, Union national team. It was a uh, it was a May night in 1979. Uh, and I know Patino a little bit. I've been at UMass a little bit, trying to play some football and stuff. He had been up there. We're in close friends, but he was coaching at BU. And we, we after the game that night, he, he, he asked me, he said, would you, uh, I'm looking for an assistant at BU. Would you like to come over? At the time, I was a proprietor of a, like a bar restaurant in Cambridge and everything. And, and it, it was a pretty good fit because right, I was in Inman Square, Cambridge, right across the bridge to BU. So... I remember telling Patino, saying, geez, but like in those days, I think my salary was six grand. His was 20, you know, for the year, you know. And uh, BU, we had a couple of pretty good years in an IT team, uh, which actually lost to Boston College in 1980 at, at, at Roberts Center. Uh, when they took the NIT out of the Madison Square Garden, they played the quality. There was only 16 teams. We had lost in the ECAC North Final to a very good Holy Cross team at BU. And BC, uh, under great Tom Davis, uh, you know, they... they um, they didn't get in the NCAA tournament. It would have been uh, year two of the old of the Big East, the original seven. And we played an NIT game at, at BC. And uh, I was at BU for a couple of years and then had an opportunity to go back into pro ball as a head coach uh, with the CBA up in Maine again with a new franchise. Yeah. So I, I went back up to Maine in uh, 80, 81, 81, 82, uh, 82, 83. And, 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 and I really had a, a feel for the pro game, you know. Just, just t- I'm interested. What was Rick Pitino like in the late seventies? A young kid, you know. Uh, um, you know, in fact, I bumped into him last week up in Brooklyn. He was following his kids' team around, and I was kind of, I always kind of used to ride him a little bit and tease him a little bit and uh, keep him grounded and stuff. And he, I said, Pitino, one thing about you, you became a better ball player when you when you get out of UMass. He had a really solid career at UMass, you know, on some really really good teams but didn't put up great numbers. He got really better, which some guys do. Jim Nelson, a guy I mentioned, had an okay career at BC. By the time they got in their mid-20s, 26, 27, 28, they really, really figured out how to play, if you know what I mean, and, and especially with the shooting and all that stuff. And, and he, he used to play in practice against our guys and just whip them. He, he was really, really good as a player. And, you know, he's a young kid. He was 26, 27, just married and, and all that stuff, living in an apartment, you know, and with, with, with his young bride, who he's still with, all the kids they had. They had six kids all together. But he was just, uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. You know, BU basketball at the time, you know, was just kind of an afterthought. And, you know, he, he got into the NIT, and the year after I left, got in the NCAA tournament, and uh, it, 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 it were good times. There were good times, great rivalry with the Northeastern. Jim Calhoun was getting that program going, you know, and, uh, and, and he went on to, you know, Immortality. They're both in the Hall of Fame, so it, it, it was kind of a uh, a, a really uh, special time for Boston College basketball. That era, you know, Tom Davis and uh, morphed on to Gary uh, Gary Williams' staff. Yeah. At, at, uh, at, uh, at, uh, when Tom went to uh, Stanford, Gary took over. Gary had been an assistant. I remember talking to Gary about coming to work at BC, but I had the CBA thing. And then the question wasn't about money. I think just being a head coach, even at the minor league level, was a little bit appealing, a little more appealing to me. I was in my late 20s and stuff. But, you know, then Gary, of course, had some phenomenal teams at, 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 at BC in the 80s after uh, after Dr. Tom Davis left, you know. Yes. 
Leo, I want to go back, though, to late 70s, 1977, when you start BABC. Just give our listeners the origin, how that got all going, and, you know, something that's lasted this long. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, it, it began because AU basketball then was synonymous with men, guys out of college. And, and if you, some of your older guys will remember, a lot of guys that played college basketball, there was no other option under the NBA other than the AU men's program, which, you know, the Peoria Caterpillars, you know, the, you know, the Caterpillar, the truck company in Peoria, Illinois, and the Akron Goodyears, Akron, Ohio. You know, these are a different America, you know, with uh, manufacturing jobs in places like Akron and, and, and Peoria. They had an industrial league, and they would basically, if you came out of college, they'd say, all right, young man, we're going to make you a, you know, uh, a, a, an intern to our vice president in sales you're going to play for our basketball team. We're going to give you $10,000. And a lot of guys would turn down the NBA to do that. Hmm. Those guys would play in the AU Men's National Championship. In 77, uh, our semi-pro team, we played in that in West Palm Beach. In fact, uh, Jim O'Brien was on our team, one of the great players at BC and a great former coach there. And as a result, uh, when we were there, the, the, their basketball people said, we're starting up a, you know, a youth program. We'd love to have something in New England. Would you, would you like to get involved? And I said, yeah. So we put a team together in 77 uh, in, in May uh, of seniors, graduating seniors. I think three of them ended up at Boston College. Tim Chase, Joe Streeter, and Dwan Chandler had a phenomenal career there. And we went down to play in their junior men's national championship. It was at Palm Beach Community College, the same place the men's was, in, 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 Ju- in July, actually. And graduating seniors, and it was a phenomenal field. That's when I first met Danny Ainge. I ended up working with him. Boston was playing for Brewster Packing out of Washington, and we get all the way to the semifinals against Michigan. And a guy named Irvin Johnson was their point guard, and wow. uh, Dwan Chandler, and a guy named David Blatt, who coached the Cavaliers, you know, a local guy, played at Princeton. They were our point guards, and we went into a double overtime Final Four loss to Michigan in '77, and the program is still here you know this will be our 41st season uh at then it was primarily graduating seniors that played because at that point uh athletes didn't go to summer school the ncaa didn't permit uh colleges to pay for athletes to go to summer school now uh, at boston college i'm sure that at the football basketball levels you know the day a guy graduates in may he's on bc campus the next day you know, and not just BC, all, all, all your major colleges, and you know, taking summer school and getting acclimated. But back then, you know, kids went to school in September, so that void, the spring after their high school season, April, May, June, July, if you're going to play at a place like BC, a high major place, you need to play. So it, it, our, our program was based with seniors, and that continued right into the 90s when then the NCAA changed the signing date, and the senior thing kind of went away. But, uh, you know, that, that's how that began. Uh, we were playing in 77 in West Palm Beach, and you know, we, we probably played 10 games that first year, maybe 12. We played some games up here in New England and then went down to the Nationals. But, uh, you know, that morphed into playing full full schedules, 50, 60, 70 games with, with teams in multiple divisions, you know, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade today. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just come full circle. Like I said, the 2018 will be our 41st season. Congratulations. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm. Based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum, CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com 
That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Patrick Ewing back in the day. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was pretty orderly with Patrick. You know, he was the, the premier player, uh, and he was at Cambridge Ridge and Latin right across. And it was pretty orderly. His parents were, you know, were clearly uh, in charge because they were highly academic people. They had immigrated from Jamaica. Mom was a... Mom was someone who really valued academics. He, he went to summer programs all the time. And he was in our program, actually, for, for four years, from his freshman year right through his senior year. And uh, I know he narrowed it to BC, BU, Villanova, North Carolina, and Georgetown. And, and, and uh, think about it, all really good academic schools, you know, you know, and other than Carolina, pretty much in the Northeast corridor. So yeah. it was pretty orderly, his recruiting. It was no circus. Coach Jarvis... Uh, at, at Cambridge, who, who, who took over the Cambridge program, Patrick's sophomore year, when when, when Cambridge Latin and Rinch Tech were two separate schools, they merged, and Coach Jarvis came in. And, you know, he, he 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 assisted the family in the recruiting, and it was a very orderly process. You know how it went, and and, and is, again, I think I think Mom, Arresta was really someone who had academics uh, in mind, and and, and uh, they I think they strongly considered BC because of course the Jesuit think about two Jesuit schools that are among the finalists. You know, and uh, I think Pat kind of wanted to broaden his horizons and move, move on. Now he's the head coach at Georgetown. Yeah. And I'm actually going to see his game next Friday. I'm looking forward to seeing him. He's a good guy. And then, Leo, let's proceed now into the 80s. BC fans want – what was your relationship like in the BABC, Boston College, the mid-80s, and going to the late 80s with Jim O'Brien, the head coach? Well, you know, Jim inherited a situation where they had come off really two things now that would, would – would, would, Probably get him the death penalty. You know the, the, the you know the whole gambling thing. It's been widely publicized, and then the academic fraud thing. When they had guys in night school, you know, and Jim took over in '86 on the heels of those two things, and you know it was a, it was a rough time for them. I think because of those two things, you know, they they had athletes playing uh, basketball and hockey. They weren't even going to school. It's all been well documented. So Jim came in in '86, and it was it was tough, and, and, and naturally they lowered the boom from what I heard on the admissions and things like that to, you know, to reestablish themselves as the academic integrity place that they were. But coming off two things, it wasn't easy. You know, Jim and I personally you know, were friends prior to that, former teammates, friends with his late, late wife and, and everything, and Aaron and Amy being born. We, we were personal friends and still are to this day. Like, a, you, know, you know, old guys, we sort of spent a lot of time in Florida in the winter, and Jim will always spend... Uh, we, we try to spend a good week together in in, 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 in Miami every winter, uh, February. Or so he comes down. He's an avid golfer and stuff, and uh, we share the same trainer in Waltham. You know, we us old ex athletes. We gotta still get out there, and uh, you know, Jim <laughs> always was, always will be a, one, one of my dearest friends. And then, so that that's a great segue. And that's a, when I talk to BC fans, the number one question they have for you is: Take us back to ninety. I think it was six. With Jim O'Brien and the whole situation was, um, we had three kids verbally commit to Boston College in July 
of 96. They were going to be high school graduates in June of 97. They would have been freshmen at BC and Tim. Mike Bradley, Jonathan DePina, and Elton Tyler, they all were public school guys. All were very good transcripts when it came to their, their grades. The issue became an issue that uh, a couple of days before the signing date, so you got to understand these guys were highly sought-after players uh, nationally, and they um, they committed, you know, through Jim verbally, and it was announced, but it doesn't have any binding until you sign. Somehow, uh, at Boston College, the admissions department uh, hadn't gotten around to admitting them, and the day before the signing date, they were notified that. Uh, at least two of them, that they were not going to be admitted at this point. They weren't rejected, but they wanted to go forward with the uh, senior report cards, grades, through a uh, term or two before they made a final decision on their admission. So for the families, this was like a nuclear bomb going off because of the fact that you basically had a deal. You shut down everybody else in the country, and you're going to B.C., and, and you know, the signing date's more formality. You see guys committing now for you know for next year. You know for the way the calendar works. The, the you know the guys that are all signed in November. These guys can't sign because they're not admitted. So the parents, you know, naturally the families, it, it was like I said, a nuclear bomb going off. So the kids had to go elsewhere. The families felt they couldn't wait. You know, they all all the kids ended up well. You know, Mike went to Kentucky. Mike Bradley played a national championship team for Tubby Smith, transferred to Villanova, where he was a lottery pick and a, and, a, and a longtime pro. Elton Tyler had a great career at University of Miami, and he played pro basketball up until a couple of years ago all over the world, uh, primarily in Italy. And Johnny DePina was, you know, UMass at that time was a, was a powerhouse, you know. Transitioned from Calipari's Final Four team into, into uh, James Bruiser Flint. John had a solid career. Jumping ahead, John's son plays for us now at BABC and he's a junior and he just committed to Syracuse verbally wow. but that, that was the thing I guess you'd call it a disconnect between the admissions and the athletic department on, on, on admissions and, and, and you know my role was I, I'm going to advocate for our players and their families so you know that that, that was you know and, and Jim really took it hard he took it harder than anybody you know it was for me I, you know, my, my college days were over it wasn't I didn't have a any skin in the game or you know, any horse in the race, as they say, but it was a devastating blow to those families because they were looking forward to their kids uh, playing at Big East, playing in a great academic institution, playing locally. Now, all of a sudden, those plans, and I think it's fair to say there was a disconnect because when players, you know, uh, commit, generally, and, and, they, and they, did, they had met more than the minimum standards, they were eligible according to the standards, then they don't get admitted and it's the day before the signing date. Obviously, that's going to raise some eyebrows, you know. And that's 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 what happened there. But uh, you know, Jim went on to win the Big East that year in '97, uh, and, and and he moved on. You know, we had a couple of uh, James Penn was on that team, and Bevan Thomas was on that team. '97, the Big East uh, tournament champions. And uh, you know, uh, when Jim left, James Penn, Scooney Penn went with him to Ohio State. Bevan Thomas was a great six man. He was a Catholic Memorial kid uh, that, that was on that. Big East championship team as well that won it, so it was kind of I think for Jim you know you know a mixed mixed bag because you know here he was he didn't get the local recruits but he won the Big East and moved on to Ohio State you know so you, it was uh, it was it was a tough time for him. Do you, you know? think and, he's, and again it was yeah. I think he felt bad for the kids you know and the families because it, it but everybody ended up okay so in, in retrospect it was a 
it, it was a difficult time, but everybody got through it. Do you think that Jim still holds ill will towards BC from that time period? You'd have to ask him that. Yeah. You know, I, I know he's a proud alum, and I know he's one of the great players in the school history, and I know that he's revered by so many people justifiably. And um, I think if you took a poll of your basketball insiders, I, in, in my heart, I always felt Jim should have been Luke Karnaseka or Jim Beheim. He'd be closing on a, you know, his 800th win there now. You know, that, that's, that's me talking. I'm not speaking for Jim. I, I just think he was BC. He, he, he personified what BC meant to local kids like me. You know, he came out of the New York Catholic League, had a stellar career, was a phenomenal professional player in the ABA, went on and, and coached and, and had great success in arguably the best league in, at, in the country at the time, the Big East, and probably should still be there. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. That, that, that's my opinion, but uh, that's that's not for me to speculate on. It's not my decision. You know, I, I was never an insider there, but you know, the, and I don't know how he'd feel on it. You know, but we never really discussed that. And then Leo, going back now, we're twenty years. BABC. Did that kind of affect your relationship with BC in terms of getting uh, local kids? That's the number one issue I hear oh, with yeah, recruiting with BC. Is you can't. First of all, you know, any amateur slash high school coach role in the recruiting process is just to kind of, you know, talk to college coaches about the ability of the kid. That's, you know, in other words, if you're the coach at BC, you're going to say, well, hey, coach, what do you think about Johnny Smith? You know, can he play here? It's not like, you know, it's a parental decision in yeah. recruiting. So always kept hands off on where kids go to school. Like, I know we got a high-priority kid at Miami now, Bruce Brown. I remember he was saying the day before, he's back in November 2015, he's a sophomore now. I said, Coach, what do you think? He says, I said, what are you looking at? He said, well, I got Purdue, Indiana, Xavier, Miami. I said, well, Bruce, I'd throw them all in a hat and pick one out. You don't think you can go wrong. Or the only this, the, the difference I can see, if you like warm weather and you want to wear shorts, go to school, go to Miami. If you don't, go to one of the other places. So there's <laughs> not a whole lot coaches can do because in a, guys who play sports like as a coach, at least in our, my style, it's kind of like that old Eastern club. I'm not like a guy who befriends kids. They probably like look forward to that last practice and get the hell away from me. Because, you know, you're two or three years under the same coach and yelling and screaming at them for messing up an assignment or turning the ball over, you're not exactly going to get invited over their house for, for dinner. You know what I mean? Your, your, your relationship with your players. I always tell players that, you know, I'll go to your wedding. You can come to my funeral, but I'm not here to be your friend. So that kind of, in the recruiting process, it's not something that I really was comfortable sticking my nose in. And as time went on, we got so many players that graduated the program that are assistant coaches, head coaches, and you're kind of on your own in the recruiting. So it really do not have any impact. Like when kids went to BC, didn't go to BC from, from BABC. And since then, there's been guys. Jermaine Watson had a great career at BC and one of their better teams. And Al is a very close friend of mine. And I, you know, I can't really help Al, can't really hurt Al. And I think the last two coaches, Stevie Donahue, who I saw the other night, at, uh, they played the one over, and Jim Christian, are guys I've known for years. Jimmy Christian got recruited to BU the year I left. I mean, they're great coaches and great guys. So there's, there's really, whether I wanted guys to go to BC or not, it's really not important. And, and to me, it's all I would say is it's one of the best academic schools in the country, and it's in the best league in the country. So how could you, if anybody asked me, which they don't, that would be my response. I wouldn't say you should go there for this or you shouldn't go there for that. Yeah. It's just, you know, and I mean, 
Scott Smelly's been a friend of mine since he's a kid, you know, at at, uh, at BC. You know, and, and I happen to think a lot of the staff there now, and with Steve Donahue's staff as well. So, you know, Impact, we do have conversations about, hey, they'll say, Coach, what do you think of so-and-so? You know, and, and that's, you know, in the NBA we do that. We just, That's them doing their due diligence. What kind of guy, what kind of family, what kind of practice habits. Those are the conversations that you have as a coach with other coaches. The professional conversation. It's not like, how can we get them to go here? You know, that's really not, you know, BC's clean as a whistle. You'll never see their name in any cheating and none of that nonsense. And our, our program as well. It was funny with this segue ahead to this latest scandal with the sneakers and all that stuff. And at the ABC, we've been uh, a Nike team, so to speak, uh, since 96. We've been you know, playing in, the, in their EYBL. And my daughter, who's our boss now, called me the day of the thing. She said, Daddy, you see this? I said, yeah, isn't that something? She said, well, I guess the FBI is not going to be calling us. I said, why? She said, well, our two most high-profile players are Bonzi Colson at Notre Dame and Bruce Brown at Miami. And I said, yeah. She said, do you know what kind of sneakers they wear? I said, no. She said, oh, Notre Dame wears Under Armour and Miami wears Adidas. I said, oh, okay. So I guess there's no same thing there. People always tell just that yeah. you know, BABC has a Nike endorsement contract, so kids are going to go to a Nike. I, I don't even know what – I'm in the NBA 22 years. I don't even – if you ask me what sneakers the two teams were wearing the game I saw last night, Maryland and Purdue – I couldn't even remember. I could tell you everything I could about the players, but as far as what shoes they're wearing, I can't remember. Gotcha. I, I don't look for that. You know what I mean? It's, and it's the same in the recruiting. So you, you if, if anything, I would push guys to a BC because it's an ACC school and it's good for the kids, and it's, a, and it's a great caveat for our program to put a kid in the ACC. We got four right now, and, and three of them are three of the better kids in the league. Bonzi Colson is you know preseason national player of the year in some publications. Yeah, his dad coached at BC, and BC I don't think recruited him. Uh, Terrence Mann was captain in Florida State last year. NCAA team was a sophomore. His mom was a head coach in Boston Northeastern, and I was head coach at URI. Bruce Brown, we talked about, went to Wakefield High School right up the road. He was a two sp- I think BC was recruiting for football early on. And then uh, Terrell Brown's a freshman at, uh, at, at Pitt and was starting early in the season. So there's four kids in the ACC, and, and I mentioned John DePina's son. His name's Bryson Goodine. He's out of New Bedford. He goes to St. Andrews. He's a class of 2019. He's a junior now. He's already verbal to Syracuse. Uh, another eight. So there's five connections to the ACC. So to us, it's more the, the level, the conference, which fits a kid more. Is he a high major, mid major, low major? So it's not like is it DC. To us, it's the ACC. If an ACC school comes knocking to, to, on our door, and any of the parents who make the decision, or the kid says, "What do you think?" I'm going to say, "Son, it's the ACC. You don't do any better." And, and BC's included in that. You know, they're one fifteenth of the ACC. Gotcha. I, I guess I, BC fans are often wonder. You know, football. A lot of the talent comes from the South and West. Basketball, as you know better than anyone else, a lot of the talent comes from the Northeast. And for the last you know twenty years or so, BC has been unable to consistently. You mentioned Jermaine Watson. Uh, bringing the top talent from this area to its school. You may look at Jared Dudley, San Diego, Reggie Jackson, Colorado, uh, Craig Smith, L.A. So I just, I'm guessing. Minnesota, those are all guys from the Skinner era that became NBA players. Yeah, and you mentioned during that same era, there's been a lot of talent locally. So I guess, I guess I'm just asking your opinion. Why do you think these kids are not committing to B.C.? There are two big guys that are both still playing professional neither in the NBA, that they went really hard on. They, were, they would have been our classes of 02 and 03. 
And from my recollection, BC was was the one of the two final schools. It was Turin Francis, who had a great career at Notre Dame, was still playing pro basketball. He was a, a Notre Dame class of 06, but he came down at BC and Notre Dame. And Courtney Sims went to Michigan, went to Noble and Greeno, uh, you know, a high academic place. Yes. Turin yeah. Francis went to Boston Latin and then transferred to Tabor Chem. Sims was the following year, played at Michigan. Had a few uh, uh, small stints in the NBA, but... Uh, but what uh, uh, plays plays in Japan now, you know, for good money, and, and these guys are still playing, and they're, they're and then they're they're north of thirty five. They both came down to, in, in Trance's case, from my recollection, BC, Notre Dame, and 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 and, uh, and in Sims's case, BC, Michigan. So it, it, you're, you're kind of dealing with nuclear powers on both sides, you know. So I think ultimately, when, when a lot of kids go to school, whether they're athletes or not, they either want to stay home or they don't. So a lot of guys want to stay home. You know, I go back to I knew people who knew BC when it was in the South End when I was a when I was a kid. Chestnut <laughs> Hill. You know, really the, the old Immaculate Conception Church. You know, it's right there. It's still there, right by City Hospital. You know, and and and, and BC was 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 established as kind of a local school for sons of immigrants to to get a great Jesuit education. You know, obviously their mission has changed. They're a worldwide university. So you look at a kid like Pat Connaughton. Yes. Right up the road in Arlington. He's in the NBA now. And I don't know that BC recruited him. He's in the NBA, and he also has a standing offer to go to Baltimore Orioles, who have his Major League Baseball rights. He's a pitcher. He's starting for the Trailblazers now. He goes to Notre Dame. Yep. He didn't play for us, by the way. Pat Pat didn't. Uh, Pat was a guy that baseball was his primary spring and uh, summer sport, you know, but he, he's in the NBA. In the old days, not to be funny, but a local Irishman not going to BC. You know, from the Catholic Conference, he played at St. John's Prep. He's a, he's a three-sport guy. That would be unheard of. I look back to our, you know, Russ Doherty in 82, Timmy O'Shea in 81, up, uh, up, up at, in 80 in, 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 at Wayland. Um, they both went to B.C. You know, Tim's a head coach at, at, uh, at Bryant. He was on Al's staff that brought in all those pros that you mentioned. He had, you know, look, look at Al's staff. Al had, Al had four assistants. Eddie Cooley's at Providence. Uh, Duquette's at UMass Lowell. Billy Cohen at Northeastern and Tim, and Tim O'Shea at Bryant. That's that's amazing staff Al had in the turn of the century, the late 90s and 2000s. Did, did you know, so they certainly, uh, and they had plenty of chance to evaluate all the BABC guys. And frankly, in most cases, <coughs> we may have an ACC guy or two a year. Most of our guys are Division One players, but they're not ACC caliber players. Yeah, but, you know, the ones I mentioned, here we are, we got five in the ACC. And Connaughton was in the ACC. I think he was player of the year, senior year, a couple of years ago, right? Notre Dame lost in the final eight to a very good Kentucky team. Yep. But so, that they, you know, the, they're in the hunt. But, you know, the problem, I think, it's not a problem, but you know, they, look who they're in the hunt with. You know, there's, there's other powerhouses out there, too. It's, it's not so much what BC isn't doing. I, this is just my opinion. I think it's what others are doing. They're having success on and off the floor. Some kids want to get away. This. I, I, I wouldn't be a college recruiter for all the team in China. It's something I really wouldn't want to do. I did it briefly in the 80s, and I, I, I decided to go to the pros. You know, college recruiting is not something that I would enjoy, especially today with all the stuff you hear about, you know. Yeah, well said. I appreciate your honesty there, Leo, too, uh, your opinion on that, because I know that's the number one issue with BC fans uh, right now, especially. There's a significant amount of local players. Noel Vonley is a Haverhill kid playing for the Trailblazers. He didn't play with us. He played a different, different club program. Uh, you know, we, we, we got, you know, George Niang was right up the road in Methuen. Maybe the 
think he wanted to go to BC or Providence, but I don't think they, they recruited him. You know, but that, the, the, the other teams have different needs at different times. You know, there, there's no, you know, there's no guy man behind the curtain dictating where kids go to college. There isn't in our program, and I don't know any other programs where there are. There may be some amateur high school coaches that kind of like to beat their chest. But at our program, we've always been mostly concerned with team success. When you talk about 22 national championships and things of that nature, we always tell the kids, if you want to be ranked, you're in the wrong sport. I, I, I think high school rankings should be abolished. All we're interested in is having our team ranked. If you want to be an individually ranked athlete, you should be a golfer, play tennis, wrestle, uh, box. Those are, uh, those are individual sports where rankings have significance. In basketball, the only ranking is your one-loss record that I'm concerned with, and I think any other coach. So all this nonsense and these kids are top 100, I, 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 I detest that stuff. You can ask any kid who ever plays for it. If we ever hear any, anybody even dreaming about that, not even verbalizing it, they're going to be in for a rough day. It's not, it's not what we preach. It's not part of our culture. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Well, thanks so much to Leo Papil for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports Podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I'd like to remind everybody, if you're a BC football fan, you need to be a part of the largest BC football fan club, the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com to sign up and get more details. Also, I'd like to remind everybody, if you want to advertise in this podcast, just email lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. That's lightscamerasportsads at gmail.com. Also, we'd like to remind you, part two of this podcast will be next week. All right, this is Mike Galtieri signing off. So long, everybody.